that Gideon would have spent his time doing what we did tonight, praising God, boasting in him. I don't know that there's any more important um, exercise in the Christian life and making sure that we are constantly praising God and bragging on him because he, after all, is the one who has done everything for us. He's our creator, God. He's the one who sustains us and provides for us. He's the one, the Father God, who loved us so much that he gave us his son that we might have eternal life. He's the one who gifts us and enables us to serve him and be effective in um, representing who he is. And so uh, there is no more important exercise in our lives to keep us in the right place than to be praising and boasting on God, in God. Our Father, uh, tonight we want to continue in that theme and with that heart that Pastor Steve has already begun with us in worship and song to fully appreciate your greatness and recognize our place in the world as it relates to you that you are the one who has done amazing things. And Father, uh, we don't begin to even scratch the surface of all of the things that you do for us and are to us because our minds are too finite. And so, Lord, we just uh, need to offer to you continual praise. In fact, you've called us into your kingdom to be to the praise of your glory. Three times the Apostle Paul reminded the Ephesians that in just the first chapter. That's who we are. That's what we're about. And Lord, I pray that we might not fail to do that. It is when God's people fail to praise, stop thanking God that we forget about him and our lives spiral into depravity. So Lord, uh, I pray that um, everywhere we go, our lives may reflect um, action of praise for our great God. Help us with the instruction tonight from your word to take it to heart, to um, make the connection as we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit by way of application to our own lives. Father, help us to um, not disregard the Old Testament stories as being remote somehow to our day-to-day -day lives. For in fact, uh, human nature is the same today as it was then. And the same things packaged differently are, um, rear their heads in our own lives. And I pray, Lord, that we will take the principles that are learned and um, use them as checks in our own life. And we ask this, of course, in Jesus' name and to bring him honor and for his glory. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 7. Perhaps you didn't have time this afternoon to finish the story and read how the battle ended. Uh, I thought it might be a good setting for us tonight to just establish that. And I want to pick up the story of um, 
of what happened in the battle. Remember I told you that in verse 12 it says the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Everything that's described here is to, to set up how, how um, powerful the opposition was, um, how um, the position of, of Gideon and the, the people of God was... Uh, compromised by their low numbers and small resources. Their camels could no, could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Of course, Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. And of course, the dream is that Israel's going to have the Midianites for lunch. And it says, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, the Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside, torches inside of the jars. By the way, these jars were not like our jars. Our jars are see-through jars. The point of these jars was so that the flame could be in there and the enemies couldn't see it. More like what we think of as pottery. And then he says, watch me, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. 300 men with trumpets and shouting. Obviously, they couldn't do both at the same time. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled most of them in their jammies. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. And it was a disaster, it was chaotic. They were killing each other. It tells us that there were some 135,000 of them and 120,000 of the swordsmen fell. There's some other incidents that took place, but I wanna skip over and I wanna go to the response and the result of the battle, after the battle. This is the aftermath of the battle in, in chapter 8, verse 22. And of course, this is the, what naturally humans would do, is it not? The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. Perhaps a sign of um, spiritual famine is how quickly we want to put a spiritual success story on a high platform. Perhaps that's the reason so few finish well. To be like God is an attraction that's as old as time itself. It's the downfall of Satan and his sharpest weapon 
on humanity. The Bible actually commentates on the fall of Satan in Isaiah chapter 14. How you have fallen from heaven, verse 12, O morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you're brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth? and made kingdoms tremble, the man who made the world a desert, who overthrew its cities and would not let its captives go home. Now the prophet here, of course, is describing a king who had the characteristics of Satan himself. And there's a play on the fall of Satan and the fall of this king. And then over in Ezekiel 28, you pick up the same topic you were in Eden verse 13 the garden of God every precious stone adorned you ruby topaz and emerald chrysolite onyx and jasper sapphire turquoise and beryl your settings and mountings were made of gold on the day you were created they were prepared you were anointed as guardian cherub for so I ordained you you were on the holy mount of God you walked among the fiery stones you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you through your widespread trade you you were filled with violence and you sinned so I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you O guardian cherub from among the fiery stones your heart became proud on account of your beauty And you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. It is that strategy that Satan employed in the Garden of Eden with the first man and woman. You've heard it many times. But Satan whispered in Eve's ear and said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And Eve, Adam, whoever, you want to be like God, knowing good and evil. After Gideon had been commandeered by God to lead the army of Israel. The first thought that Israel had was to anoint him king. And actually to create a dynasty. Not only would he be king, but they decided to sign a contract that his son would be king and his grandson after that. If there was ever a chime that's ravenous for superstars, and the setup of stars to rule over us, it is in the present time. The evangelical world is joined in the star search. I'm just waiting for the TV program called Evangelical Idol to come on. There is great danger 
in viewing spiritual effectiveness as a sprint. It is not. One victory, one success, one time of faithfulness in your life before God does not a lifetime make. The spiritual life, the walk with Christ, is a full life marathon. The faith courage mustered in a crisis will not be enough to keep you faithfully courageous in the ordinary of every day. That's the story that I want to face here. The Apostle Paul himself was careful to not congratulate himself somewhere in the journey. It was at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, that he said, I have finished the course. I have fought the fight. I have kept the faith. Now I know there is prepared for me a crown of righteousness. Before that time, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he said, I, I, I buffet my body daily, making sure that I'm attempting in every possible way to live a disciplined life for fear after I have preached the word of God, I might be disqualified from the prize. Gideon was at the top of his game and everybody knew it. What was worse, he knew it. You can have a season of faith and end up a failure and mislead generations. For Gideon, it went south very quickly. From faith hall of fame to spiritual hack. Now, by the way, Gideon, his name actually means hacker. And um, I don't know if that really has any relevance to what he did in life or what God called him to do, but that was what his name meant. Ironically, he becomes a spiritual hack at the end of his life. Oh, I, I wish I were able to tell you in the story of Gideon that, that he ended as a courageous hero and, and, and liberated Israel from, from generations of apostasy and made a theological course corrections and all of that, but he did not. His one bright moment, he tore down the idols in his father's yard and came up with some strategy of shouting and trumpeting and showing fire. I want to pick out from this text tonight a few verses in chapter 8, some important diagnostic observations that if unheeded, in our lives will lead to disastrous results. There were signs, by the way, that Gideon had some spiritual erosion in his life. Let me just pick out a few. There was no track record of faithfulness. I've already talked to you about that. This was not a lifetime of faithful leadership. This was a moment. And by the way, a moment is a great thing. A moment can be the starting point of a lifetime of faithfulness. I'm not denigrating a moment. I'm simply saying a moment of faithfulness in your life, a high point with God, a, a time that you can point to when you were really faithful in the word and really disciplined in your prayer life does not a spiritual lifetime make. In um, verses 36 and 37 of chapter 6, 
Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you had promised. God never promised that he'd save Israel by Gideon's hand. He said, with the strength that you have, go. And then he articulated what that strength was. It's an assignment I'm giving you, and I'm going with you. I mean, God established from the very beginning, Gideon, I'm with you. Gideon, this is my assignment to you. Gideon, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to make Midian as one person. God never said, I'm going to save Israel by your hand. But that's what Gideon was interpreting, isn't it? I don't know about you, but as I was reading this, and Gideon says, now, okay, I want everybody to follow my lead. I want you all to shout, for the Lord, that's good, and for Gideon, for the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon. Now, I don't think I even have to ask this. But if I were to get up in front of you tonight and say, you know, God is giving me a a really big vision for Calvary, and um, I'm going to share it with you tonight. And I want you to get all excited about it. I want you to get really passionate about it. And I want all of us to say, it's going to be for the Lord and for Rick. Are you with me, Arnie? No, you're not. I'm just thinking to myself, I, I don't know if that's really what God wanted him to say. And then in chapter 8, the early part of chapter 8, you'd, you'd have to look there yourself again, but there's a little bit of opposition internally to his enterprise, and he comes back and he drags them through the thorn bushes and briars and baptizes them in vinegar, and not really, but... He drags them through the briars, and then he tears down a tower and kills many, gets some poor kid to write down the names of all those people who conspired against him. These are not good signs. And then the people cry out in verse 22 of chapter 8, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us out of the hand of Midian. I just feel like that scene was kind of like, Gideon was like, you know, he's like, they were saying that, he was like, please. You know, it was nothing. I mean, you you get the idea that he he was just soaking in all the adulation. Here's the first diagnostic deal. You can sound good, say all the right things, and not be what you say. Uh, Gideon, by the way, responds in verse 23, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That sounds good. He said the right thing. But then you got to read the story. Let's read on. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. 
They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each man threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, or Oprah, I'm not sure. Seems like Oprah might actually be in this story. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land enjoyed peace 40 years. Jerubel, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Let me just make a point here that it is easier to talk about God to verbally credit him with lordship than to willingly submit to the hard work of having him actually change you. You can remain full of yourself and sound devout too. You know what I long to see in this story and it's just not there? I, I long to see after the battle there where somehow the whole group, including Gideon, says, wait a second, everybody. Just, just, just back up a few steps. Let's just sit down humbly quiet for a few moments in God's presence and let's just look at each other and think about what has just happened, what God has just done. I mean, let's just for a moment say, whoa, is God amazing or what? Did you catch what God has done on our benefit? Somehow I'm just longing to hear that. I'm longing to read that. I, I, I want to see them. Did you see what God did to us? We, we were beat up. We were defeated. We were being embarrassed year after year. And God has delivered us. It's all backslapping and telling Gideon how great he is. What we get from Gideon is quite disturbing, really. Instead of parlaying his leadership into an opportunity to steer the people out of apostasy and make a theological course correction for generations to come, he turns God's good gifts into a cheap, fleshly sideshow and says to them, well, there are other ways for you to show that you love me. I take cash or credit. I'll give you my um, mailing address. Give you both my American address and my Canadian address. I do have one request. You will find out as we look here a little more deeply that what Gideon was doing here is saying, I can't be king because that really is reserved for God. But I could enjoy what it's like to be a king. Don't give me position, but give me the possessions that come with position. Instead of public responsibility of taking the leadership as spiritual leader, he prefers personal reward. I won't take the crown that belongs to God, but I will take credit for where I and the people I have touched are at. 
Of course, God created me. And I got to give him credit for that. But didn't he create a spectacular person? I mean, did you not like my strategic plan or what? We didn't have to do very much. Blow a few trumpets, shout a little bit, show a little bit of fire, we win. Instead of being a humble servant of a great powerful deliverer, God is the great deliverer God. Gideon is increasingly acting like a self-congratulatory king. Let me show you how. I can't be king, he says, but I could retire like a king. How about each one of you give me one of those earrings? Now that's 135,000 earrings. They actually tell us the weight here. 17 shekels. Now, depending on which system, whether they were weighted in the old system or a newer system, it really doesn't matter because we're talking about a lot of money. It's somewhere between 40 and 75 pounds of gold. At $18 an ounce, $1,800 an ounce, the math, conservatively, I didn't take it to 75 pounds, the math conservatively works out to $1,720,000. Not a bad retirement stipend. Not bad commission. takes the commission of a king. We read down a little further in his life and we find out that he has many wives. Polygamy was the playground of the ancient kings. The fact that he had 70 sons and we have no idea how many daughters means he must have had somewhere between 15 and 20 wives. living like a king, even though he said he wasn't a king. And then finally, if that isn't enough, his 15 to 20 wives are not enough to satisfy his lust, which no doubt had been cultivated in his father's backyard year in and year out, growing in his heart and in his life and his mind as he watched as a young person the orgies the sexual orgies of Canaanite worship on his own property. And so he goes and gets himself a concubine, has an affair with a Canaanite woman in Shechem, visits her once in a while, has a son, names his son Abimelech, <laughs> Abi Malek. You know what that is in Hebrew? My father is king. You know, sometimes we can say all the right things but not actually mean what we say. Oh, I couldn't be king. King is reserved for God. But in his heart, he was king. He was living like king, acting like king, When people treat you like a king or a lord, soon you start making lord-like decisions. This wasn't enough, the um, taking of the gold and the having of many wives and the Canaanite concubine. 
The second important diagnostic observation that we must pay attention to is this. You can appear very religiously devout, making spiritual things happen, and all the while be resisting the hard work of having God make you. It tells us in the text that Gideon took all of the gold and made it into an ephod. I'm going to um, give you a little bit of background on the ephod. The ephod was a, like a breastplate type thing that the high priest was to wear. It's described in Exodus 25, it's described in a number of places in the Pentateuch. And the ephod was worn by the high priest and, and uh, it was uh, part and parcel of determining the will of God. So Gideon forms all of the gold into an ephod with a decision on his mind that I'm going to help God. Look at the worship I've made for you. People are going to come and see it. Now let's understand something about human nature here. It is easier and more natural to try and do for God rather than accept the ways he wants to do for you. You're still in charge. It is chronic among us that we want to transfer the, the, the activities, the spiritual activities into some evidence that, that we're really busy for God or that God things are really happening in our lives. And a bunch of spiritual activity does not necessarily mean that God is at work in your life or my life. We can get, um, we can get uh, lost in, in action and activity and think that all kinds of amazing things are happening for God on the basis of our generosity and our goodness and our activity when in fact we are using the busyness of religious activity to prevent God from actually working in our lives. Because after all, when we're doing religious activity, we can still be in charge. When God is working on our hearts, he's in charge. So Gideon makes this gold into an ephod, which he places in Ophrah, his town. He uses the money to fix what is wrong with religion, what isn't working well. You see, the ephod was to be, belong to the high priest alone. Gideon was not a priest. Gideon had decided that the Aaronic priesthood was lame, that it was time to deconstruct church. It wasn't working for people. So he decided that he would fix religion for God. The place where the ephod was to be, the place of worship was to be Shiloh, not Ophrah. But come on. Ophrah's where all the action is. Ophrah's where Gideon was. Ophrah's where the pseudo-king was. Ophrah would make it more user-friendly, more relevant. Gideon 
would traffic the will of God by ignoring the word of God. He would be the one with the ephod. He would now be the one determining what God was saying. He would bypass the lame Aaronic priesthood and make a better, more relevant way of relating to God. He would establish his own doctrine, his own way of standing between God and the people. More than a king, he was anointing himself as high priest. See, when you think about it, being offered to be king was redundant. There already was king in heaven. There was no place for an earthly king at that time, and God always intended for it to be a theocracy where God was king and the people submitted to God. And by the way, that Old Testament context of theocracy is precisely what the New Testament concept of church is all about. Church is a theocracy. Jesus is king. So he decided to set himself up as a high priest of the theocracy. He liked the idea of taking credit for the battle, and now he was going to give himself credentials. Gideon decided to make himself assistant God. That's what he would do. His first act was to make himself a permanent fleece. That's what the ephod would be. It would be a place for consulting on the direction of God's will. And guess who was going to speak for God? The one who owned the ephod, the new high priest, Gideon. From his backyard, he would rule, manipulating further his life's success, manufactured by his own will. Instead of being clothed by the Spirit, he decided that he would be clothed by what really mattered in life, what he really valued, gold. In gold, Gideon trusts. Personally, I think that should really be what's written on the American dollar. So Gideon and Israel realigned their worship to focus on the created thing and had an affair all over again with the material. Where do I get that from? Look at verse 27. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it, the ephod, there. And it became a snare. Not accidental that God's word chooses the word prostituted themselves. They reverted to the sensual Orgies of Canaanite religion. They had turned full circle back to the spiritual slum that God had dug them out of. I want to, um, I want to connect a couple of dots for you right here. Because um, there's every possibility that the lesson might get lost in your life individually if all you do is transfer it to a religious setting. Say, well, it doesn't really apply to me. I'm not setting myself up as high priest. It's not what I do. Let me tell you what this really is. It is aiming to make something for or about God 
that ends up replacing him. Gideon was setting something up allegedly for God and allegedly about God. We can do this in the sacred setting and we can do this in the secular setting whereby we take our resources or we take our talent or we do something and we say, I'm going to do something for God. And the intention and the purpose at the front end is just that. I'm going to do something for God. And before long, because we don't have the right heart attitude, it ends up replacing God in our lives. We can come into a windfall of money. And we can say, I, I, I'm going I'm to absolutely invest this in, in the purposes of God. I know what I'm going to do. I'm, I, I'm going I'm to purchase something and I'm going to... I, I'm going to um, dedicate it to the service of God. Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. And, and before long, we, we, we no longer use it for the purpose we originally thought we would use it for. And, and, and it becomes a, a snare. It, 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 it becomes a, a time-consuming object. And eventually, instead of drawing us toward God or being used for the purposes of God or investing in God, it, it starts to become an investment for us and it replaces God in our lives. It wasn't long for the ephod. The ephod was, was this religious artifact. It was to determine the will of God. Nothing could sound better than that. I mean, if I said to you, People in every possible way here at Calvary Baptist Church, we are going to establish um, systems in place that we will know the will of God and we will intensely know the will of God. That sounds great at the front end. But if for some reason, the thing itself, the action itself, uh, the strategy itself, replaces God it becomes a disaster and we always always have to be vigilant that we are not lining ourselves up with an addiction to the material because that's what we are climbing, that's the hole we're climbing out of. That's where God is, the pit that God is digging us from. That's what we naturally are. We are naturally materialists. And we have to be ever so vigilant that we don't find ways to try and sanitize or sac make sacred material and end up worshiping it all over again instead of the divine. If we nurture the material as our worship, we will heighten our appetites for the material. Verse 33 and 34, no sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their God and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Gideon, instead of leading religious and worship reform, led the people back into materialism. And after he died, all restraints were cast off. He was thinking to himself, you know, lots of people will come and touch my gold vest, and no one else in town is doing this. It's kind of a 
pay pass offering. Because after all, people could just touch and go. You know, people are busy today. They don't have time to spend time devoting themselves to God. I'll just make myself a gold ephod. All they have to do is just come by and touch it. They'll get their worship charge for the month. It's more user-friendly. Don't have to make the long trip to Shiloh. And by the way, this is how most people want God to be. They want him to be easy. They, they don't want him to demand a lot. You know, you know churches that are, that, are, that, are, that are portraying God as a, as a demanding God, as a, as a God who wants your all and your all your devotion, and they're not, they're not filling the churches. We need, to, we need to produce a God that's a little more god light. I really believe that God has a more generous grace. Specifics are less important to him than enthusiasm. What do you think? Do you want to run me out of the church for that statement? I guess you do. Oh, Shiloh, Ophrah, who cares? High priest and the ephod, why not me? I'm the leader. What does it matter? The Aaronic priesthood, it's lame. It's not really cutting it. It's not drawing many people anymore. It's not drawing people to God. Let's, let's can the church. The church isn't working. Let's start with something different. Let's write a book. Let's write a book that would tell people what God really meant to say but wasn't able to get across in his Bible. How do you like my love wins vest? Dr. Henry Morris of creation research writes this. There is a growing ignorance of biblical doctrine being replaced by a love for God and one another that is both emotional and amorphous and an ever-increasing withdrawal from absolute truth. So in the midst of all this theological talk and the making of worship methodologies, can I leave you with several cautions tonight as applications for us as a church, for leaders, for you in the secular, in your style, among your stuff, wherever, to a culture that's addicted to credits and credentials over truth and character. Make sure you're talking about God is about God talking and not a show to cover up a flesh-dominated life. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 23. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. There's no end of God talk around us. Every Sunday morning I get up and I, first of all, 
take a look at what the, um, the religious programming is on Sunday morning. I don't know why I have this kind of masochistic temperament. It gets me fired up for Sunday morning. It gets me fired up this way. I think of all the lame teaching that is on TV, steering people astray. And, and also think, what if, a, what if a, a, an unbeliever t- tuned into most of this garbage? No wonder they don't want to go to a church anywhere. They think we're crazy. They, they think that the stuff that is being proclaimed as of God is foolishness, and why wouldn't they? All Sunday you can watch it on TV. There's no shortage of God talk out there, but... I think there's a huge shortage of about God talk. That's what I'm talking about. Make sure that um, your God talk isn't just a cover for the love of recognition and praise, that it's really genuine, and it's really about God. And it's really about the God who's working in your life. Second point, turn away from those sideshow theologians who are trying to assist God into being more user-friendly and more to our own likeness. Resist the urge to try and do for him. It will wreck his ways he wants to do for us. I think there's a whole lot of trying too hard to be a success out there instead of being faithful. Third, make sure the symbols of his presence remain the means to the end and not the end in itself, endangering the very reality of his presence. Is God most important to you or the stuff about God? When Matt Redman, was it Matt Redman who took all the music away? Was it him? I sometimes wonder, not that we're gonna do this I sometimes wonder if we just stripped everything away and we just gathered for a long time to talk about God together and pray. I wonder how much of the church would just empty out. Because for the most part, way too many people are really excited about some of the stuff about God but not necessarily really interested in him. Lastly, truth will always be sacrificed where Jesus loses his lordship and expedience trumps obedience. God wants obedience, not pragmatics. The supplementing, the superseding, and twisting the scriptures to make the sacred more to our likeness is the golden ephod of our day. And generations are being herded into spiritual adultery. The call of the church. 1 Timothy 3.15 is to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. We're called to obedient reform Checking on drift, not creating it. Submitting to God as he is, not how we wish he would be. Lean not on your own understanding or you'll topple the whole thing over. Can I just make a couple more statements? Sure I can. 
And I want you to understand these in the right context. And if you don't understand them or if I've rubbed you the wrong way or you think I said something and you're not sure what I said, I'm going to park myself here. You come up here and talk to me. The church is not to attract people, but to tell as many people as possible the truth. The church is not to entertain people, but to confront people with the truth. We're the pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is not to socialize people, but to see that people are treated by the truth. The church is not to make it easier for people to get to God, unless it is easier because it is true. And the God is not an easier God, but the true God. The church is not called to dumb down discipleship, to make it more appealing, when all the while the church knows the truth that the disciple must die to himself or herself. And the church does not hold out material prosperity to people when she knows full well that the truth is spiritual wealth, not material wealth. So when you take God's glory, you cause others to forget God's greatness, and they lose their God-sized vision. Unless God is the real value, the battle will be lost. If not on the outside, certainly on the inside. And we'll take many with it. Father, I wish the finale of Gideon's life were something that could be more more celebrative. But then, Lord, I, I think of my own life and I think about the many possible ways that my life or any of the lives in here could go just the same way as Gideon and how easy that can happen. And it causes me to think more deeply about what I, what I really value, who I really value, who I really give credit to. Do I long for credit? Do, do I miss it when, um, when people don't congratulate me? Do I, do I get upset when, when I'm not picked for some assignment? Do I, do I find myself addicted to credentials? Or Lord, do I long to give all the credit to you and accept what you give to me? To hand all of my credentials over to you and say I'm only credentialed because of you. Without you, I am nothing. Do I long for character and truth? 
do I want more to experience what you're doing in me? Or do I just like to um, stay in charge and do all kinds of things for you? Our Father, um, self-reliance, pride, wanting to be like God, wanting to have God in our own likeness is chronic among us. So Lord, I pray that, that you would um, take us as a family, as a community of faith, as a congregation, and, and you would be, you would sift us that we might um, have removed from us any of the vestiges of materialism or, or pride or self-reliance, idolatry that would get in the way of the amazing things you want to do. Lord, it just seems to me as we have analyzed what you've been doing this summer and, and in the weeks before that and as you've been building something here, Lord, and giving us so many open doors and into so many homes and seeing the difference that can happen in people's lives that... that all of it could come crumbling down if we get in the way, if it's ego or preference and not worship. So Father, as we um, move our ministry into another season soon, I pray, Father, that the lessons that are learned from this mini-series would not depart from us quickly, but would shape us in new and significant ways. That God may be glorified. Lord, we want you to be lifted up and exalted. We know that that's the true measure of effectiveness and success. And Lord, Deliver us from the thoughts that um, big visible resources guarantee big success. You didn't even need 300 men and their lame torches and their useless trumpets. Because you are gracious, you use us to share in the victory. And the glory alone rightly belongs to you. So we renew our commitment to that, Lord, together tonight. And together, God's people would say, Amen.